Home is a part of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Great shows for people with lively curiosity. Shows like Flash Forward, You Are Not So Smart, Futility Closet, and Gweek. You can find us all at boingboingpodcasts.com. And for more information about this podcast, visit homestoriesla.net. This was from an Italian liner that sailed to South America. These doors I love, these are from the Oriole, as is this light fixture here, this uh, nickel light fixture. And the artist is Tranquilio Marangioni, who was one of the... These are the builder's plates of various ocean liners. Uh, this is John Brown and Clydebank. All the furniture, end tables, Italian end tables from a ship called the Ausonia. This is from the Victoria. These were the ceiling tiles in the show lounge of the Love Boat. Even the small details like this, you know, when you're sitting on the ship all these days and the more you look around you, the more you discover all these little elements that somebody was actually thinking. It wasn't just, oh, this is a pretty, you know, orange artwork, we're going to throw it on the wall. It had to mean something. It had to represent where the ship came from or where the ship was going or some facet of life, you know, of the traveler or the sea. And so you get those little gifts if you look closely enough. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. I am what they call a cruise journalist. I travel around the world and write about cruises and cruise ships. And in addition to that, I sell uh, bits and pieces of some of the beautiful old liners that have been scrapped in India in the recent, uh, in the past two or so decades. Uh, I sell them to people, uh, interior designers and people who share my same passion for the ships. Peter Canego was a dreamy, introverted kid. Didn't have a lot of friends. But he had interests. Dinosaurs, butterflies. He remembers first becoming aware of the great ships that plied the seas when he was browsing the World Book Encyclopedia and he came across a photograph of three magnificent ocean liners. The Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mary, and the SS United States. He was captivated for a while, like kids are. And then he moved on to other things until one day in the eighth grade. I was assigned a paper on the Lusitania, which I thought was a battleship. I had no idea. And I did research, and then I found out there was this four-stack ocean liner sank by the bow. Over a 1,000 people were killed. And I thought, well, now that's got to be the Titanic. They just, they're, they're confusing this. And I, I couldn't believe that there was another ship like that. So the more I did research, I found out there were other ships, and they were similar, but they each had their own sort of distinct architectural personality and imprint. And I thought, this is an incredible realm. For the next year or two, I'm going to just explore this. And that's been going on for 40 years. <laughs> and I don't ever see it stopping. Um, I don't either. Especially after visiting Canego at his home in Oceanside near San Diego. It's covered in bits and pieces of ships, pieces that Canego has personally rescued from the biggest shipbreaking yard on Earth, halfway across the globe, in Alang, India. When I asked him how many individual pieces he lives with, he estimated it at 150, which was shocking, because it felt way too low. For example, I'm guessing that number doesn't include the dozens of ship models arrayed meticulously across a blue-painted tabletop ocean in his second-floor hallway, but does include doors, porthole windows, furniture, artwork, builder's plates, and ship's wheels. It's impossible 
to stand in his house, reach out, and fail to touch something that came off a ship. People sometimes ask him, he admits, what's the deal with the ship stuff? I kind of turned it around. I just, I don't understand why more people don't find these things interesting. They love cars. They love planes. They like trains. uh, They like battleships and, you know, warships, but they don't seem to be connecting with these beautiful ocean liners. They were magnificent. I mean, they they went from the Edwardian era all the way up through mid-century modern. And now, of course, we have these massive cruise ships, which I'm not quite as fond of. But the architecture and the engineering that goes into these things and the fact that they're the size of a skyscraper and they move from A to B and they have these incredible interiors, at least on the older ships, beautiful woodwork and all the state commissioned art. And, you know, they had this mystery and intrigue. They were taking people to new lives and new worlds and, you know, movie stars were crossing in the heyday in the 50s and they were in all the great films like Sabrina and you you just, you know, they, they were just a part of life. And then all of a sudden... The jet age didn't quite spell the end of big ships. Today's cruise ships are bigger and fuller than anything that ever sailed before them. But jets did write a final chapter to the great age of the ocean liners, an age that limped along through the 1960s before expiring with a sigh. Canego went to UCLA, studied theater arts, eventually ended up in the music business, doing promotion for the 70s band Sparks and some others. But he never forgot about his love for the ships. I had spent every bit of free time while I was in the music business. I had my own company. I had a business partner. So I was able to disengage myself for a week or two and go to some remote part of the earth and find some forgotten liner um, in the Ukraine or China or backwaters of Greece. There were all these laid up ships that people just didn't know what to do with. There was no scrap market. There was no demand for them. So they just sat. And I would go and hunt down the owners and get permission. I would go aboard and document all these ships because I knew that at some point in time they would start disappearing. Canego loved the ships so much that, like a loyal son sitting at a deathbed, he wanted to record their passing. He didn't want them to be forgotten. So I went there um, asking, please, to let me document just the ships, just because they're historic, and this was an important phase of the end of their lives as much as it was their launch and their heyday. The downfall is just as an important factor in, in their history. In 2001, he recalls, three obscure but magnificent ships the Oriol from the UK, the Principe Profito from Portugal, and the Provence, later the Enrico Costa, originally French. They all ended up at the same time in a lang. The Far East economy was starting to bubble, skyscrapers and roads were being thrown up in unprecedented numbers, and there was suddenly an enormous need for structural steel. And so all those ships that had been laid up for years in limbo were starting to arrive at the breaking yards. Canego crossed a personal Rubicon, he decided that he had to go from simply documenting the ship's demises to trying, in an individual way, to hold back history itself. I was too scared at the time to follow them, but I had contacted the shipbreaker and I had made a deal to purchase all sorts of artifacts from them. 
I filled a 20-foot, they filled a 20-foot container and they sent it to my place in Moore Park. It's the bar that's in the living room and a bunch of doors and uh, builder's plates and various things like that. So after I cleaned this stuff up, because it looked terrible when it arrived, it was really scary, and I was like, what have I just gotten myself into? Uh, cleaned it up and started putting it in the house, and then my friends were seeing these things going, my God, do you have any more of these? Do you have that, you know, another chair? Can I get a door? And I thought, well, okay, maybe this is a good business. The music business was in the doldrums, or at least his part of it. So he thought, well, why not? But the salvage project stayed a fairly small operation, and one conducted over long distance. Until, So two years after that, around 2003, 10 beautiful ships all at once. This is after 9-11. This is, again, with the burgeoning steel industry in Asia. There were all these factors combining that all these ships at once ended up going to India. And I thought, if there's ever a time that I have to go to India, this is it. And I went the, the Stella Solaris, the Stella Oceanus, the old Ivernia, the old Sylvania, the old Empress of Canada, all on the beach at the same time, lined up. So off he went to Alang in the Indian state of Gujarat. It was February 2004. It was the most Orwellian, frightening, but fascinating scenario you could possibly imagine with partially broken ships that I had sailed on, sitting on the beach next to super tankers with bridge wings that are about to be cut off and uh, piles of debris thrown down on the ground. You know, they're people carrying these giant steel plates. The atmosphere is smoking because of all the acetylene torches that are going off to cut the steel and the sound of the crunching of the metal hitting the beach. And just this incredible scenario. Now if you come down, come down. Wow. That's a clip from a video Canago produced about his trip on the road to Alang. It's a rugged place, noisy. The ships are driven right up onto the sand at high tide and then allowed to sink when the tide recedes so the workers have easier access. And then the destruction begins. Uh, we canvassed the whole marketplace there and I went aboard the various ships that hadn't been demolished too far where there were still things and I would be able to point out, you know, etched glass panels and certain works of art, um, original furniture, that type of thing. And I would just make a list and tell, tell my guy that helped me with all of this stuff. This is what I want. Make an offer, pay for it. Let's do it. So that's how it basically all started. And I got about three containers worth uh, shipped to my house. They would empty the containers in my front yard. My neighbors, we lived in a very you know, tracked home neighborhood. Fortunately, uh, we didn't have, you know, you, you could you could pretty much do what you wanted, but we did have homeowners associations and things like that. So I would have to take this big pile of stuff. All my friends would come over and we would clean it up, throw it in the backyard, and I would gradually move it into storage and then figure out how I would sell things that I didn't actually want to keep. In the meantime, we rebuilt our house completely out of all of that stuff. Canego would return to Alang about once a year for the next decade, every time he got word that a ship he knew and loved was bound for the breaking ground. But at this point, I want to bring the story back home to Southern California. Because what drew me to Canego, besides the fantastic intrepidness it takes to go to India and navigate the ship-breaking bureaucracy, what drew me to him and sent me chasing down to Oceanside to meet him is that 
He didn't just want to rescue the stuff. He wanted to live with it. He wanted to reconstruct in his home, in landlocked miniature, the bygone world of the great ships. So I ask him, how did that happen? I thought I would save it and somehow make use of it. Um, the convincing other people to share that same vision in my home in the beginning was, was not an easy task because a lot of the stuff looked terrible when it arrived. In the back of my mind, yes, I, I wanted to surround myself. I wanted to live in this stuff once again, give it life again by having, having it serve a new purpose and have it transport me back to this place where I could never go. I mean, as a kid, I would sit and dream and, and you know, wonder and look at these brochures of these old British liners, thinking, my God, wouldn't it be incredible to go to South Africa on the Windsor Castle or, or go to China on the old Victoria for the Italian liner Victoria. And all these, when ships were transporting people on these long, magical voyages, and I just thought, well, I could never do that. I mean, they were all dying when I, when my interest came about, they were all going to Taiwan and being scrapped. This ship right here behind you, the New Amsterdam, one of the most beautiful liners ever built. In 1974, it was retired and sold for scrap, and it should have been saved as a hotel. It was just as grand as the Queen Mary, a little smaller, but it was a Dutch ship estate. And she was sold to Taiwan and torn to shreds, and there were photos that came out, and I was just horrified, horrified that they could do this, these beautiful creations, that they put so much time and effort and used all these great architects and artisans to create these things, and yet they're just disposed of. So when, when the Oriel went, that's when I said, oh, whatever it is, I'm going to save it. I'll worry about what I do with it later. And then when the stuff arrived and I cleaned it up, and then I looked around my house and I thought, well, those are ugly tracked home doors. Why don't I figure out a way? And I had a good friend who was really capable of, of installing these things. I'm going to figure out a way to put these doors up or even put them on the wall as decoration. I mean, they look better than anything else that I can find, and they mean something to me. So that was what I did, and once that started, it kind of got out of control. Then everything I looked at, the stair railings, the, 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 even the windows to some extent, I was like, I, you know, I, I see the trash can out there outside the window. There's nothing out in that yard to look at. It's just a stone wall. So why don't I put a piece of artwork over that window, something that the light can shine through, and then I have, you know, I've, I've blocked the view of the trash cans, and I have something beautiful to look at. So that became... That became part of the modus operandi. And so Canego's preoccupation with living in the world of ships grew. Eventually, his marine memorabilia business scaled up, which of course meant more pieces came to live in his house as well. Mid-century modern was becoming very popular amongst interior designers, and, and there was a big marketplace starting for that. And there was three ships that were designed by an Italian architect in India at the same time with all this original Italian artwork. And I saw this article in the LA Times, literally, just as I was about to go on this trip. And it was all about Gio Ponti. And I was like, my God, Gio Ponti designed some of these ships. And so did, you know, his greatest competitors. They're not as famous as Gio Ponti, but I can get that stuff. So when I realized that, I went, okay, let's get 50 of these chairs and we'll get 40 of those. And I was just, I mean, it was... You know, when it all came together, I was horrified at what I had done, but I was actually able to find a place to sell it. I, I had people that I contacted uh, after that article in the LA Times, I contacted the gallery that they had done the story about with all the Gioponti stuff. They came up and they just could not believe once I had gotten the things that I had all these original ceramics and artworks. And so they consi I consigned stuff to them and they sold them and they had all the contacts, the movie stars and other people of wealth that would just 
pay anything to get some of these things, you know. So I was buying things that were falling apart in India that would have gone to some movie theater or been broken down and recycled for their components. And I was able to turn them around and now they're in, you know, homes in Bel Air <laughs> and other places like that. So they're on to a good life and I was able to try to make some sort of business sense out of it. Because at the end of the day, I had to, you know, I didn't want to sink with the ships either. I didn't want them to take me out. It hasn't always been easy. He discovered fairly quickly that pieces built for the very particular environment of an ocean-going vessel don't necessarily make for an easy transition to a home. Army old ships, not so much the new ones, because they're all squared off and everything's flat and 90-degree angles and such. But in the old days, they built ships with curves. They had camber and they had shear. Uh, those are two architectural features that help the ship move better through the water, and um, they gave them a grace and a beauty that the new ships don't have. But that meant that the legs on the chairs might be shorter on one side of the chair if it was on a, on a sharply angled deck so that the chair would sit up properly straight. In certain staterooms, they would shave the legs to make them work, say on the Queen Mary in, in, a, in a tourist class. Um, same thing with the doors and with the uh, wood paneling on the walls. You have to uh, compensate for certain angles. So yeah, it's very frustrating for like our guy, he's a genius and he figures all of this stuff out, but he's measuring and remeasuring everything because no door actually is with four 90 degree angles. Everything is slightly canted in one direction or another. So he's got to shave off something or he's got to bend the, or, or put an angle in the door frame to make it work. So that is a bit of a challenge with certain architectural elements. Still, it's been worth it. A ship house is a good little conversation starter, and the neighbors love to be invited over. Especially since Canego and his partner have moved from Moore Park down to Oceanside, a community that, as its name suggests, enjoys a proximity to the water. Well, they react a lot better down here than they did where, where we used to live. Uh, there, they would just sort of look at, like, what is all this? You know, it doesn't look like the other houses here, you know. Why don't you have that, that, that new Home Depot-style stair tower that we have, you know? It, it didn't register. They weren't people that appreciated this type of aesthetic. I find here, like, our neighbors are fascinated, and, you know, we, we find ourselves throwing a lot more parties than we ever did because people want to come here and hang in our house and they get it, they love it. And it's, it's real exciting for me to be able to tell people about what these things once were and have people share the same sort of vision. So yeah, it's good down here, we like it. <laughs> and for the grown-up who was once that dreamy kid, a house that recreates some of the romance of the age of ships makes the occasional out of plumb doorframe a small price to pay. If you come into this house and you didn't know the stuff was from a ship, you would still think it's beautiful because of the quality of the materials that it's made out of, real mahogany and this etched glass that they can't do anymore because, the, well, the artisans are all dead and the chemicals are deadly. You know, probably that's why the artisans are all dead, basically. Um, so to have that surrounding me makes me happy. But then I know the backstory. I know I look at every light fixture and I knew where that light fixture was on that particular ship. And if I'm sitting here and watching something on HBO at nine o'clock at night, having a glass of wine, relaxing at the end of the day, then I just stop and I look around me and I gaze and I transport myself back. Oh yeah, that glass panel was in the ballroom of the Empress of Canada. And I just think back, you know, what was that, you know, all the things that happened in front of that particular panel. And I try to imagine that. Um, it's kind of a Walter Mitty-esque life, but I, I dream a lot, I suppose. And for me, 
uh, I love to take myself back and imagine these things when they were still alive and active. After all, isn't a big part of the urge to travel, and this was particularly true when travel meant glamour, meant a respite from the everyday world, not a frenzied hurtling through crowded air terminals, stuffing chow down your gullet, getting manhandled by security, isn't a big part of it the urge to escape. It is for Peter Canego, down in Oceanside, by the sea, in his landlocked liner. He's escaping, too. He's just figured out how to do it without leaving home. When I'm looking at a Greek mural, I'm, you know, it's, it's got Theseus slaying the Minotaur or, or some story. I'm transporting myself back to that. I'm thinking of the process. What inspired that particular artwork, you know, and I happen to love Greek mythology, so the story comes to life for me. And then I think about the artist that made that mural, say if it's uh, this Italian artist named Luzzati, his Picasso influences and the, and the way that he incorporated these sort of almost comedic or commedia dell'arte type uh, figures into this ancient Greek process with a mid-century twist. You know, the whole irony of the, the, the different eras sort of combining. I, I just hope that when I'm done with them, that somebody else might come along that, that has the same knowledge or same passion. I'd hate to just see it all, you know, dispersed because it, it's a cool-looking chair and nobody knows that that was in the ballroom of the Augustus, you know, and going to South America from Italy and, you know, probably Renata Tobaldi sat in that particular chair. Who knows, you know? Who knows?